Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eats Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. In this episode, we're going to discuss insider threats. The term means different things to different people. Broadly, the term refers to any person or entity who has trusted insider access behind an organization's firewall or inside their secure perimeter. Insiders include employees, officers, contractors, temps, and certain categories of vendor and supplier that either have unescorted access to an organization's physical premises or who perform some type of important software or network function and have been granted administrator access to the organization's network. All insiders pose a potential threat. It's a matter of degree and whether they have an inclination to abuse their position of trust or not. Joining me today to discuss insider threats are two experts on the subject, MasterCard's head of insider threat management, Seth Eichenholz, and my co-host for this episode, Oz Varal. Seth is currently the head of e-discovery and insider threat management at MasterCard. In this role, Seth is responsible for ensuring the insider threat program is meeting governance requirements, equipped to meet constantly evolving risks and threats, and aligned with security and privacy standards. He previously was vice president for e-discovery at Swiss Re, attorney and consultant at A. Kershaw PC, manager at the law firm Berenfield, Spritzer, Schechter, and Scheer, and an associate at PwC. Oz Varal is a managing director at FTI Consulting. Oz has over 20 years of experience in advanced data analytics and data science, risk management, financial crime uh, compliance, counterterrorism, and AI-powered digital transformation. Oz has led engagements that involve financial crime compliance, intelligence, and analytical assessments, creation of effective anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act compliance programs, look-back transactions reviews, and roadmap designs for integrated and cognitively enabled risk and compliance frameworks. So welcome, Seth and Oz, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us, Scott. So Seth, the Gartner Group has categorized groups of insider threats into four categories, the names of which I love. Pawns, goofs, collaborators, and lone wolves. The names themselves contain clues as to what type of threat they may pose. But can you walk us through what is meant by each of these categories, Seth? I can try. These are terms that were new to me when I first when I first read them. I think we have to look at it holistically, just in terms of the current modern enterprise organization. So actually, Scott, I'm not going to answer the question directly. I'm going to going to go rogue here and kind of kind of break it down in terms of I think where the risks really rely. Most companies have some kind of combination of these three categories of people. You have your employees, pretty standard. You have your non-employee workers. Contingent workers is a useful term. Sometimes they're called statement of work workers. The people that are actually employed by a third party, but they're basically doing all their work or some of their work for the enterprise at a question. Then we have actual third parties, third party vendors, providers who are integrated into general standard business processes. So technically, you know, from a legal perspective, they're potentially an agent of the enterprise. And then I think fourth, and this is also something that falls by the wayside from time to time, acquired companies, your M&A entities that come on board. And it takes sometimes years for those acquired companies' employees to fully integrate. But ultimately, they are, you know, employees of the new company. You know, the enterprise is responsible for them and their actions, even though they technically are operating on a day-to-day as a third party. So they all have unique challenges. They all sometimes have a very, very specific 
potential threat, meaning they may have access to a very specifically high-risk set of data or documents, or it could be just someone right in front of you who is a regular employee that's been there for 15 years. So you don't hear insider threat that comes about as a result of acquisitions that often, but it's actually a very common occurrence when an acquisition closes and systems or compliance frameworks, the various sort of underpinnings of the respective organizations aren't knitted together right away. And sometimes that acquisition, you know, they get more than they bargained for because they they acquired one or more insider threats that were continuing to operate undetected while the company was being transacted. Unfortunately, that's right around the time I meet people. They're now dealing with some insider threat that wasn't identified in due diligence. So I think it's a really good point that you make toward the end there. Yeah, Scott, that makes sense. Also, I was thinking, and I wanted to get Seth's perspective on this, you know, while many consider insider threats to be purely a cyber threat, in fact, you know, most of our cyber colleagues spend a lot of time on insider threat related issues for clients. Entrusted insiders pose a variety of threats to organizations, um, including those that have little to do with the network, theft of inventory, intellectual property, embezzlement, bribery and corruption, money laundering, workplace violence are all crimes that are typically committed by company insiders. So securing a network is challenging, but there is more to securing a network than a robust firewall and malware protection. From your perspective, what are leading organizations doing to counter a wide, a wide variety of insider threats to harden their networks, educate their workforce and trusted third parties and fortifying their physical premises and remote workplaces? I think we have to break this off in chunks, Oz. On the physical side, obviously having an ability to just know who's physically in the building and when is important. So that's a badge thing. Most companies have that. That's not new. Even pre-COVID, many companies had flexible work arrangements. So there are some people that just work remotely. There are some people that come in a couple of days a week. But knowing when and where they are is important, especially on the travel side. Part of insider threat is protecting your assets. Obviously, an employee is hopefully your highest level asset. You need to know when they travel. Most enterprises I know of, at least operating at a high level, do, for example, keep track of when their employees are traveling. There is notice kind of given so that if, God forbid, there is an emergency or but we've had people fly to a country that suddenly undergoes a coup and you know we need to get them out of there. So we do have a crisis management team that we work with. Obviously, that's reactive. The proactive side of that is just to be able to track and know when they're traveling, know where they are without obviously violating their privacy. That's some of the physical stuff we see. We have relied on closed caption TV to capture incidents. Most companies actually have obviously have a low tolerance for any kind of physical altercations that do happen from time to time. Sometimes they happen in the parking lot. Sometimes they happen directly in the hallway. So sometimes we'll go to the videotape literally to kind of get a confirmation that this thing actually occurred because most people won't admit to it and you know, take the appropriate action there as well. On the hardening the systems, that's obviously a much broader ask. One of the key things of any insider threat program is to first identify what are your most critical assets. So if you're a company, you know, that makes widgets, the intellectual property related to the making of those widgets or the actual widget making machines on access to them would be considered high priority. If you're a financial institution, obviously your customer data has to come first. What we see really on the insider threat program though is that's kind of already accounted for and should not be anything new. Although there are gaps, like we talked about with the remedial mm -hmm. MAs, maybe, you know, a huge, big international company is acquiring a much smaller, more regional company. The smaller company likely doesn't have the same level of sophistication because they haven't had to. So sometimes there's a bit of a culture shock on that. But what's more interesting is 
monitoring the employee data, employee activity, where you're going on the network, what are you doing on the network? That's where I think the insider threat day-to-day really lives. Obviously, we're looking to protect customer information, specifically financially. But on the employee data, that runs very much into the challenges of the insider threat program in terms of meeting regional, global, local privacy laws in terms of you know what can we and should we be monitoring from an employee activity perspective. That's one key area. The other thing we always look to, and this also ties directly into maybe the uh, more traditional data loss prevention or DLP model, is how is it possible to get data in and out of the network? What data are we okay with leaving the network? What data are we not okay? What data are we okay with coming into the network? What data are we not okay? If you're in a financial institution or if you're part of a company that is directly regulated by antitrust rules, most companies hire from their competitors all the day long. You know, a lot of people inadvertently or advertently bring in their prior employer's data with them, figuring, well, that would be really helpful for my new job. And it could definitely have an impact on antitrust concerns. So there's a monitoring for that as well. How you effectuate that monitoring what level of detail you can get to. I think that's kind of the, you know, very specific and frankly interesting parts of the incentive threat program. You reminded me of when you say, you know, you can't safeguard things unless you know where they are, right? It seems simple enough. And yet that alone could be a monumental undertaking when you've got so many digital assets of varying degrees of sensitivity being created by a huge number of people. I remember doing a theft of intellectual property investigation for this chemical company, and we were walking the plant floor to just sort of try to get a sense of what the vulnerabilities were. And their most sensitive intellectual property was these proprietary product formulas, these chemical compounds that they were using to create their products. And they were all in composition notebooks from grade school with like the marble colored composition notebooks sitting on the tops of the desks of all their scientists unoccupied. Quick win for that consulting engagement. I say, hey, you see those drawers that lock? Well, maybe before you leave for the day, put them in there. Sometimes the simplest solution is the best. I would imagine by now they have digitized those formulas. But I think you're making a great point. Sometimes the most challenging solution is the easiest one. But also, once you start digitizing things, that's where I think it becomes safer, but also more challenging because the other side of the where is your data. It's the who, meaning who has access to it. But access becomes very, very challenging, right? You have A, you know, you get people who are longstanding with an enterprise or when I say enterprise, I mean, who change jobs over the course of 15, 20 years, six, seven times. So Sometimes they have legacy access to a repository that they may or may not need for their new job. It's very rarely cut and dried or black and white on that. And that's an opportunity, right? So any insider threat program will talk to you about opportunity is half the deal. If you can do something, you might do something. There's even instances where people who maybe work at a call center, a lot of times those call centers are 24 hours a day. They have three shifts and you have three different people or sometimes more working the same terminal. So while they even, you know, likely have their own user ID and their own on a system, you still have to collect data from a single endpoint. So who did what when? And, you know, that's not always cut and dried either. The logs are are rarely that easy to decipher. So there was a lot of other sides of that whole, you know, Marvel notebook, composition notebook side that you think are simple answers. But ultimately, some people would prefer just locking those notebooks up in a safe every night and keeping the, the combination with one person. That actually is arguably the more simple solution. You created a great segue for this next question when we're talking about opportunity. So the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners have embraced noted criminologist Donald Cressy's use of what something he referred to as the fraud triangle. 
And the fraud triangle, three-sided, and it's a combination of opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. And those three criteria or factors help explain what motivates people to violate the trust that their employers have placed in them and commit crimes that abuse their positions of trust. So how important is it to understand the motivations underlying insider threats in order to be able to effectively counter them? You know, I think it's critically important, and I think it's important to look at why somebody does something from more than one perspective. So as a side note, highly recommend any kind of fairly mature to becoming more mature insider threat program. Seriously look at getting a behavioral scientist on board, because a lot of the data may point to something that you would not have thought of. We recently just bought a behavioral scientist and it's very interesting. And I kind of just almost two different lines of that. There's one who's just somebody, you know, has background in behavioral science you know, which is very much like a psychological discussion. And then there's behavioral data science, which is really more looking at data. And those things are related, but also very separate. But what we see is, for me, it's an amalgamation of, I guess, people's acceptance or disdain of either a specifically written or it's a decency quotient, but it's also like a corporate citizenship. The word corporate citizenship is not new, although it's been used, I think, in context of how is a corporation a citizen of the world, right? How much charitable work are they doing and things along those lines? Are they doing things in a decent way? I look at corporate citizenship a little bit differently, more along the lines of if you're an employee or a worker for a company, so you're talking your contingent workers, your third-party workers, what are the basic things you should and shouldn't be doing that make you a good corporate citizen? So, for example, if you draft a really great PowerPoint deck that's got all the cool animation and it's really a sexy deck that, you know, you could be using for future projects, whether in the same job or different job, and you throw that to your private email account because it's good to have, you work really hard on it. Well, that's problematic. Arguably, that's that's theft theft of IP. Arguably, you're violating six or seven different corporate policies. And the problem with all those corporate policies are they're not necessarily front and center to everybody's day to day. If somebody wants to effectuate sending out an email, they're going to send out that email. Many companies do allow people to send and receive data from a personal account. They likely won't get flagged. And it's gray area at best, common law theft at worst. Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody think that's okay to do it? And I've seen at all levels of band in terms of, you know, super duper senior executives all the way down to, you know, people fresh out of school do that kind of thing. And their reasons are all quite similar. Either they knew what they were doing and they just figured, look, I'm going to do that because I want that document. Or they didn't realize what they had done is probably violative of several policies and potentially theft. So a large part of this goes towards proactive education. Are you being a good corporate citizen? Are you doing the right thing by your employer? And that's an interesting conversation to me because I think everybody has a different perspective on what they, quote, owe their employer, just like what their employers owe them. Seth, so you brought up something really interesting. I was thinking about it too. Uh, you brought up a data scientist, two points, cognitive and non-cognitive. And you're absolutely right. So there's the behavioral analysis piece, and then there's data, you know, hardcore data, uh, but then the behavioral analytics converts data into an actionable intelligence. And what I want to, you know, ask you is in relations to sentiment analysis in the context of insider threat is in order to conduct a really robust, effective sentiment analysis, it has to be holistic over a timeline because, you know, we humans, you know, we got our own complexities and things vary from day to day and, you know, communications vary from channel to channel and so on. I mean, this is tricky, but how do you conduct a really effective sentiment analysis 
while protecting uh, employee data protection, you know, in the context of data privacy and emerging regulations that are also coming out this way, the U.S.? So it's a great question. I think maybe we should just backstep and explain to people maybe what sentiment analysis is before we deep dive this. One of the newer things that, and I don't argue it's not that new, but one of the newer things many insider threat programs are trying to push forth is the traditional items in a, an insider threat program are you're going to have your data loss prevention, user behavior analytics, which is really looking for deviations outside the norm of behavior, user activity monitoring, which is really actually monitoring what someone's doing at their endpoint on their machine on a specific basis. One of the newer areas is sentiment analysis. And sentiment analysis, in my opinion, and please, Oz, keep me honest on it, mm -hmm. the way I would describe it is it's really kind of a combination of textual analysis with a little AI sprinkled in, I use that term lightly, and a little bit of behavioral analysis. In other words, we're having an enterprise monitor level tool that looks at text. You can imagine the different kind of tools that really are incorporating text. You're talking about your instant messaging applications and email for the most part, but arguably you can look at any text across the screen. And it's there's a tool that will kind of suck in that text, figure out who said what, hopefully anonymize it to meet privacy, which we'll get into requirements, and then associate that conversation or that snippet of a conversation with a risk score. So something along the lines of I'm going to kill my boss might trigger a specific you know, risk score because of the content of the conversation versus, I don't know, it's been a sunny day today, which, you know, is probably very innocuous. And that's um, why natural language processing is quite important, right? Right. So I was going to say, I don't think it's particularly new because NLP or natural language processing has been around for quite some time. Right. It's been used in various formats in various different industries, including the e-discovery industry for many, many years. So where does the AI come in? The AI comes in and kind of coming up with a scoring. What is the potential problematic nature of that conversation or that particular text or that piece of textual analysis? And that gets to, I think, the earlier point, which is why I agree with us, having both a behavioral scientist to say, yeah, over the course of these 65 different examples, I can determine that this person might present this level of risk. And then you have the data science person who is also looking at purely from a data perspective, although I guess in conjunction with the behavioral science person, what kind of risk are we seeing purely, you know, that the data is showing us. And ideally, you're putting all that together to create a more accurate risk score. The problem with sentiment analysis is, one, it's still very cutting edge. I don't think there's any specific tool or set of tools that are considered the standard bearers of this. It's kind of a mix of old and new technology between natural language processing, which again goes back decades, arguably, as well as, you know, the AI, which I guess is just looking for patterns and looking to score it. Context matters. I can tell you in our world, we've had many terms we use that really bring back a lot of false positives. My favorite example was the yeah. word kill. People use that word a lot, not in the context of actually ending somebody's life, but in terms of killing a conversation, killing a process, all kinds of completely innocuous conversations. So it involves a lot of false positives, sentiment analysis. And my understanding is from the insider threat perspective, a lot of sentiment analysis tools that are in the insider threat world started their life really as a proxy for an HR survey. I know several instances where companies were literally using the same technology to get more detail on how does a company feel about this major corporate change? How does the employees feel about if we close this office? which actually was pretty accurate and common during COVID. 
How does a company feel if we go to a completely remote workforce situation? How do people feel about coming back to work? So a lot of times in a survey, people feel like it's not anonymized really. So they don't really feel comfortable giving a real answer. So the idea behind sentiment analysis from the HR perspective is that if you actually monitor in conversations, you might get a much more accurate representation of what people are thinking. So it's that same model that kind of makes the insider threat sentiment analysis so appealing because if we're actually seeing in a fairly real-time basis what people are saying and thinking, it might directly correlate to what they might be doing, in which case it allows a real proactive as opposed to a reactive approach from an insider threat program perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And also as it relates to advanced analytics and data science, including AI machine learning that, you know, you've mentioned, it's pretty exciting because there are multiple uh, emerging reg techs out there, regulatory technologies that tackle these challenges with advanced techniques. And I know, you know, from like MasterCard, you guys have been also investing in bringing, hiring some of the, you know, best and brightest from the data science community. Is it a challenging balancing act to do in-house as well as, you know, relying on some third-party technology vendors? Absolutely. But what's interesting is, Oz, I'll tell you, I don't think the challenge is as much in terms of working with a third party. If you're working for a big international or national organization, they're probably going to treat you well. The challenge is getting their tool to work appropriately in your environment. You know, every environment is unique. Every environment is just set up in a certain way for whatever reason, likely this legacy, that's how it's been. And getting new sexy tool to work in old, less sexy environment sometimes becomes its own logistical challenge. This is what I've learned about software providers. You know, software providers do a great job of building their software. Their software generally does work as advertised. Software providers even do a better job of upgrading that software and wanting you to upgrade your your tool as well for more money. The challenge all these (laughs) software providers have, and this is not a knock on them, I think it's just a fact, is getting their system to work in your tool. It's like, I'm a car guy, so you know GM has perfected the small block V8. It works really, really well. If you want to install that in a car that was never designed to accept a small block or, you know, a VA generally or one that's older technology, that's where, you know, you have a lot of logistical challenges, right? How do you get the transmission to bolt up? Does the electrics going to work? Will all the safety systems work? You can make it work, but ultimately it's a Frankenstein's monster approach. That's how I feel like every software that's off the shelf or custom made, that's the challenge they're going to face in getting it to work in a big enterprise. With the discussion on sentiment analysis, we're talking about programs that are pretty mature, pretty sophisticated if they're now thinking about leveraging things that are so sophisticated. And yet not every organization has a formal insider threat management program. For those that haven't yet made that commitment, what do you consider to be the critical first steps? And then once those have been defined, How does one ensure that those initial steps position the organization to eventually get to the point where they have a mature and fully developed insider threat management program? First, to quote many a philosopher, you got to know thyself. So the company, who are your potential risks? Where are your potential risks in terms of your people? So we mentioned the pawn, the goob, the collaborator, and the lone wolf. So understanding what they are. And I guess just for quick reference here. Pawn is somebody who is probably an employee or a contingent worker who is unaware of their activity being a problem. So we're talking somebody who gets social engineered or fished and whatnot. Having some kind of uh, malware program or, you know, phishing program. Many companies usually have some kind of situation where they train their employees where if you see a problem or you see an email that looks a little bit sketchy, they want to just forward it to a specific internal or external provider so they can take a look at it and see if it's kosher. One simple solution to getting around most of that is to have 
most companies who are even a little bit sophisticated have some kind of email monitoring tool where they monitor incoming emails where they can determine very clearly if it's A, an internal email, which we can assume is trusted. If it's an external email, is it noted as being an external email? So it usually gets like a banner, maybe it's yellow. So this is an external email, which hopefully gives people a little bit of awareness before they start clicking on links. Or is it an external email that's been vetted because it's from an approved partner that gets a green banner that says, this is external, but we're telling you it's okay because we know it's. The goof is another risky person. So those are what we call ignorant or arrogant users who believe they are exempt from security policies, you know, in terms of trying to bypass security controls. And a lot of times, you know, we see people bypassing security controls, not because they're looking to be malicious, but to solve a problem. Whether it's something as simple as just, you know what, I'm not going to go through the VPN because uh, the bandwidth is terrible. I'm just going to try to pump directly into my modem. You know, I don't think they're looking to be problematic. They're looking to get their work done, which again is still an insider threat. I just think it's got to be looked at through the right lens. The third, you know, area to look for is what we call the collaborator. That's someone who cooperates with an outsider, like a company's competitor or a nation state to commit a crime. Again, we see this just not very often. Oftentimes, what I, where I have seen this is in a call center type world where people have very specific access to a customer's data or information and they might be able to siphon off dollar amounts or points or what have you here and there. That's a tough one from, a, from an insider threat perspective because technically it's a completely separate third party, but they have access to maybe the enterprise's uh, environment or database, which, you know, how do you monitor something if somebody's VPNing in and not actually having you know, a, a workstation challenge? And then the fourth one, is uh, what we call the lone wolf. This is the fourth type of employee who for financial gain are acting independently and maliciously without any external. So I find a lot of those people fall into people who are disgruntled, who maybe have been told their job is being eliminated or you know, just feel like they're not getting their due and either they're taking things that don't belong to them or they're literally committing fraud or stealing things of value. So I think first it's helpful to identify that. And this is where insider threat becomes really interesting to me because on a day-to-day, the insider threat program, especially, and to Scott's question, somebody who doesn't really have an insider threat program, how do I know who's going to do this stuff? This is when you start using the tools at your disposal. So if you have a SIEM or a security information event management tool or an email monitoring tool, you can start looking generally to see, well, who's sending stuff outside the network and is it personal or not? And that also is its own kind of rabbit hole to determine, was this attachment to this email clearly personal or not? And there's ways around even getting that. If somebody flags or renames a document that my kids picks, and it's actually really, really critical financial data, that's somebody who's really committed to committing fraud. And we see that. But generally, people just will push things out of the network because they want access to them. So outside of insider threat, there's many ways to capture that. And you can definitely you know, look into different email monitoring tools or security information event monitoring tools. Some companies take an aggressive tack and they actually quarantine any outgoing email, and they make it incumbent upon the sender to determine if that's authenticated or not. A lot of companies build their insider threat program out of an existing data loss prevention or DLP model, which is essentially could be used uh, with off-the-shelf software like you know, McAfee or things along those lines. There's some more sophisticated ones out there. And DLP, you know, encompasses a couple of things, right? It encompasses your main vectors of being able to push data out of the network or exfiltrate data, whether it's email, USB, cloud storage, like Google Drive. Or frankly, home printing, which I get asked all the time, has that been a problem given that more and more people have worked from home with COVID? And that's its own separate deep dive. Knowing the ability to monitor those things. What's your retention on your print logs? You know, what's your retention on email is an important question. And then knowing do you have software 
that exists on the network to monitor. If not, it's not expensive to have. And then the last part of it is you have people to manage, you have people to monitor that. A lot of people buy into these scenes. Splunk is a popular one because it can consolidate a lot of those things into a single dashboard, but you do need somebody or a team to monitor it. Many companies have a SOC or security operations center or similar to monitor for that. But those are some of the building blocks I would suggest people take a hard look at if they're looking to kind of build out a nascent insider threat program. Something that I'm curious about relating to training in compliance theme communications. I know, Seth, you've touched on it a bit during the conversation earlier. As you know, some of the most impactful training in compliance theme communications are those, quote unquote, ripped from the headlines, um, stories sure. of actual bad events that happen inside organization uh, that can be used as a teaching tool. Do you have a good cautionary tale that you share sure. with colleagues to illustrate the potential risks posed by? Sure. I mean, and it's interesting because this was a fairly big news story and then it kind of wasn't. If you recall a couple of years ago, the assertion was that a senior engineer for Tesla, the electric car company, had access to all the uh, Tesla self-driving protocols, which if you can remember, is kind of really important, right? Because that was considered the next step in the, in the world of cars and, and the transportation is autonomous driving. Whether that ever will happen is a separate conversation, but Tesla had done a lot of R&D on that. Yeah, so that was the a hot story, was, I remember that, yeah. Right. So the assertion was this engineer, for whatever reason, disgruntlement or more money, what have you, accessed basically the mother load of all the R&D on this and all the intellectual property and transferred it to his personal cloud account, left the company went to a very small startup competitor. And inside of a couple of months, that competitor had a fully working prototype of an autonomously driving car and didn't really have to spend any money on the R&D because it was readily available. And I believe this is still mired in litigation. And there may have been nation state actors involved in that one. But I think it's a great cautionary tale because for Tesla, it's really bad. They essentially do three things, right? They build cars that are electric, they build batteries to run those cars, and also they do their whole solar roof panel thing. And then I guess their third new thing they'd like to get into is the autonomous driving business. If what's being sold or being stolen, rather, you know, is directly germane to a company's money-making enterprise, it's probably really, really important. So you have to wonder, well, where was the access controls? And that's where you get into it. If that person was directly responsible or working on that program, of course, he or she should have had access to it. But then, you know, is there a way to monitor things like that. So one thing we're looking at, for example, is can we monitor the outbound traffic of, of source code? Right? There's only so many flavors of source code that generally exist out there. There are tools that can look for certain types of syntax that can automatically say, oh, that's a credit card number. Oh, that's a telephone number. We don't want that going out. It might be a customer list. For that. A lot of false positives on that. But that's the kind of level of detail that I think the company needs to look at to avoid that. Because Tesla, even if they win whatever litigation, They've already lost here, right? And you got to remember, there's two levels of damage here. There's financial damage, but then there's reputational damage. That's where these things really hit home, right? It's not so much the existing dollar amount. It's the market impact, the way people think about your company that ultimately can lower stock price and cause much bigger problems from the risk perspective down the road. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, also, there's another risk, which is the speed to market, especially in this, you know, exponentially growing tech space. So let's sure. say you end up recovering well, even financially, but then as it relates to your IP and trade secret that has gone out to the competitor, the product that you were hoping to launch now gets significantly delayed and you got to come up with some modules and different kind of versions and upgrades. This is where I feel like one of the keys to any insider threat program success is a really good relationship with the human relations team. Some people call people and capabilities now, but that really matters. Why? 
Well, people are leaving companies and getting hired all day, every day. That's nothing new, right? But when, when people are hired, they're being hired for their level of expertise and their knowledge. And a lot of people, like I said, a lot of their knowledge and expertise is encapsulated or showcased in some of the documents they've created or worked on. And a lot of people feel like, well, if I worked on it and I was the author, it's, I own it. And that's against the conventional wisdom of if you do something on company time with a company asset, it's not yours, it's the company's. I mean, that's going to be in most people's handbooks, right? And if it's not, maybe right. it needs to be. So that get for me, that gets directly to my conversation earlier about corporate citizenship. Training, letting people understand, sorry, that's not yours. And if you're looking to leave the company, which you're obviously entitled to do, understand that some things don't get to go with you. The idea of it, maybe, you know, if you have to recreate that document, that might even be problematic if it's really IP, but that's a separate conversation. People need to be aware of what they're allowed to do and what they're not. And I feel like training and proactive discussions about those things, not in a threatening manner, because you don't want people thinking that it is a big brother situation, but just getting people to realize, look, what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is common law theft. I just feel like that messaging really needs to be brought home much, much more. Yeah, that's the uh, the rationalization leg of the broad triangle, right? It's just it is. Well, you know, I put the work in. This came from my my own intellectual capital, but yeah, you're, you're right. It, it's a very common but wrong-headed way of looking at at IP. So, set the term cross-functional partners to use a. Uh, what has become now somewhat cliche, it can be overused, the term, or worse, you know, sometimes it's almost like a, a, a euphemism for the reason that your department's not going to get additional resources, right? Rely on your cross-functional partners. Uh, insider threat, however, kind of is not within one stovepipe of the organization. It, it cuts across many different areas of risk and really does require kind of rock-solid cross-functional collaboration. So, you know, who are the critically important cross-functional partners in order to have a meaningful and effective insider threat management program? And, you know, like maybe just how does that work at MasterCard? So it's a great question. And you can allude to the answer uh, in terms of the usual suspects by, you know, what we've spoken about. One, obviously the entire insider threat program has to revolve around respecting people's privacy rights. Right. The last thing you want is to be actively violating local regional privacy laws. That's going to result in its own set of problems. So we work very, very closely with our privacy team. And sometimes there's a lot of negotiation. We kind of live in the gray area. What's clear and not clear is very easy. It's the gray areas and especially things like sentiment analysis, things that are really kind of burgeoning that are, you know, are real, truly a mix of technology and involving potentially people's personal information really becomes problematic. What do I mean by that? If somebody is sending emails all the day long to a personal account about a loved family member's illness, it's clearly protected by HIPAA, if not in the US, other you know, uh, uh, privacy rules. Of course it is, right? How do you kind of separate that? And, and there's no great answer for it. Like there's no AI that says, oh, that's talking about Anne Hilda's medical problems. So we don't want to look at that. And like I said, a really, really clever fraudster would start hiding data, you know, or hiding things in that realm. And I don't have a great answer for how to get around that other than manually. And most companies do not have an underground layer of 5,000 people monitoring every communication, not that I know of. They may want you to think they do, but most of them don't. So privacy for one, for sure. As I mentioned, it's human resources. We work very, very carefully and closely with our HR brethren for various reasons. We do see a potential problem. We refer the case to them if, if it's the right policy violation, for example. They tend to be more business policy and more worker things. So if somebody is being a workplace bully, which we see all kinds of forms of traditional you know, harassment and terrible things along those lines, insider threat plays an absolutely direct role on that. 
We also see sometimes employer, employee, meaning manager and, and staff member problems. And sometimes the insider threat program can help uncover some of that. And we work very closely providing the evidence to the HR team and letting them run their investigation. From a business policy perspective, many companies have as part of a legal compliance group, we have a business compliance or ethics and fraud group that really deals with people who might be violating business policies, whether it's somebody who's, you know, maybe a little too close to a vendor or maybe somebody who's just using a banana business process that's violative of our policies. Our job is to, again, help uncover that, help see before bad things happen and work with the business compliance team to make sure that, you know, the right training is put in place or a specific activity is disallowed from a technical perspective, things along those lines. We do work very closely with generally with our legal department to make sure that, you know, if we do need to take legal action, again, they have all the evidence we need to provide to them. We work with the businesses. I mean, ultimately, I take the New York City subway standard. If you see something, say something, right? And that becomes harder and harder as companies become so disparate in terms of some workers sit next to you, some workers are in a different continent, a different time zone, and your only collaboration with them is a once a month call. So you don't necessarily know what your person is doing. So that becomes uh, an issue. So we do work very closely with the businesses to try to have them help us help them, if that makes sense. Tell us what's going on. And you're about to have, for example, a round of layoffs. You might think that that's confidential, but the reality is people probably have heard about it. And that's where we tend to see a lot of higher risk uh, activity. People that know they're leaving the company figure they got very little to lose. So why not take all those documents? Why, you know, why not commit fraud right now? I'm already leaving anyway. We, we ask the business to be much more cognizant of potential odd activity. We work closely with our security rep. You know, I don't have any physical security people on my staff. So we have various components, of corporate security. It's physical security. It's a security operations center, the access management team, the crisis management team. So I almost keep like a black book your Mission Impossible style black book of key points of contact to know, you know, who to reach out to if I need guidance or if I need backup or I need additional resources. So it really does take a village. And a large part of my job is really kind of being an ambassador to those other groups. We actually keep a monthly working group of all those representatives of all those lines of business that I just mentioned to make sure we're all in agreement on any new policy that we want to enforce or any new protocols or kind of answer their questions. Those are really helpful. You reminded me of just how important physical security is to the overall, you know, sort of insider threat issue. Years ago in different organizations, I assisted clients with basically the physical security of version of penetration testing, targeting as part of a security audit. Can we breach the perimeter using social engineering techniques? And then if we do, what kind of damage could our team accomplish? And um, there were some pretty compelling things that happened because a lot of times, you know, simply wearing a suit and carrying a clipboard and then flashing a building ID that has nothing to do with that premise. Uh, and yet that usually gets you waved in. And then it's just a matter of, you know, what are you able to observe on the top of someone's desk? What are you able to you know, are you able to log on to somebody's workstation, gain access to the server room? You know, once you've breached the perimeter, it's usually kind of less of a hardened premise once you're inside the secure perimeters. Well, it's a great point. Also, for me, it hits upon that, you know, a lot of the simple solutions are not technical. So I'll give an example. A lot of people have said to me, you know, a question, you know, what have you done to do additional monitoring for maybe home printing? A lot of companies have allowed a relaxed stance on being able to print documents your home machine. And my response is, how do you really monitor for that? Most tools that I know of have a hard time being able to, if not determine what you actually printed by the file name, 
you know, it's definitely not giving you content. Oh, not, you know, line 17 on page 44 of this 20 page document looks like it's proprietary. Well, it could very well be proprietary <laughs> and it could very well be that person wants a written document to look at. That's not the risk for me. I may have arguably it's even safer in your house outside of COVID. Let's say you print out a really key PowerPoint deck that's got <laughs> super proprietary information on it and you go to meet a friend or a client in Starbucks. And that document comes out as it may be it's supposed to, and then you accidentally leave it on the chair. That for me is a much more risk than printing it at home or printing 400 documents at home because you're old school and you really prefer to read documents on paper rather than on a screen. So I don't really have an answer for how to deal with that. I can just tell you, I kind of really examining what really is risky is challenging. And then in terms of how do you set a threshold on home printing? A lot of people do it on, on total pages. I'm not convinced that 400 pages as a random example is any more or less secure than that one page that might be really problematic. So, you know, there's no wrong or right here. It's just a function of what tack are you going to take and is it really effective or not? And it's very hard to determine what is effective. But, you know, some of the basic things, for example, a lot of people will tell you when you go into a hotel or a Starbucks, be careful logging into the network as a tack. And while that's true, I would argue that's, you know, no less risky than just somebody walking behind you and seeing what's on your screen. Or maybe capturing, you know, from eyesight, you know, the buttons you push for your password. All that's possible. So I don't have any great answers for that other than sometimes it's not necessarily a technical issue. Sometimes it's a human interaction one and a common sense. I guess at a, at a high level, it is worth kind of having that real honest conversation. Do you really feel comfortable stopping somebody and saying, hey, I don't see your badge. Do you work here? Are you within your rights? Sure. Is it probably a good idea? Probably. But the reality is I think people are loath to do that, right? People generally hold the door for people. And unless you work in a really secure government contractor type business in a standard corporations, people just assume that, of course, you should be in this building. Why else would you be here? Well, and that's why it's so easy to exploit human nature, right? Because we're, we're not wired that way. This has been a fascinating conversation. You, you took us through a whole spectrum of issues. You've got a, a very uh, scholarly view on in, insider threat. And I think, think it's something that anybody interested in the subject will really get, get a lot out of. Really, thank you. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thanks so much. It was an honor. I I apologize if I kind of rambled on too much um, or went off topic. But again, I think, you know, it's obviously not just a topic that's near and dear to my heart because it's an area I work in, but I do find it to be really a a truly fascinating uh, line of business to be in that has real true value. Any company that has a working chief security officer will definitely want to have a conversation if you don't have an insider threat program about putting something together. And obviously, you know, people can feel free to reach out to me with any questions or comments. I know we're still building. I'd say we're kind of in our middle age now. We're certainly not totally mature, young middle age. Um, but I certainly appreciate <laughs> the opportunity to speak with both of you as experts and insiders. I appreciate that. Thanks, Scott, you thank, thank you for hosting. That was MasterCard's head of insider threat management, Seth Eichenholz, and my co-host for this episode, FTI Managing Director, Oz Varal. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case topic or guest that you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 